Today on episode number 175 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dave Stahoviak and I answer listener questions. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I am joined today by someone who may be familiar to you because he's been on many past episodes, and that is Dave Stahoviak. And Dave, his last name may sound familiar to you. We have the same last name. It sounds familiar to me. Funny how that sometimes works. Dave has taught in higher ed as an adjunct, and it's been a while, though I know sometimes he feels rusty when he comes on the show, but I know that the things we're going to talk about today, Dave, you have a lot to contribute to. And I also have a lot to say. And so I told you that, <laughs> that I, I was going to really work on my conciseness today because there's been so many exciting things happening lately. And then also a lot of people have been writing in and asking questions. So I decided, even though I hadn't necessarily planned on a Q&A episode, it was time to tackle some of these questions and also share some updates on where I've been. We haven't even seen each other much lately in the last week. I am glad to be back. I listen to every episode. I am learning things all the time. I I think I was telling you recently, I think of myself as more of a freelance professor these days because so much of what I do is about learning and coaching and facilitation, so many things we talk about on the show. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be part of the conversation today and responding to some of these questions and hearing feedback. And our first comment, it comes, actually, first question comes in from Brianne. Brianne is, uh, was interested in the Choose Your Own Adventure topic you did a while back, Bonnie. She said, I just found this podcast and I love this idea. I'm wondering what level of class you think this would be best for. Would it be too overwhelming for an introductory course? As well, I'm wondering whether you teach statistics or methods and if it might work in those kinds of classes. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for your question. And I'm glad that you were excited by the idea as I was. Just this idea that we can give more agency to our learners and have them have multiple ways in which they might express their achievement of different learning outcomes has been really powerful for me. And I talked about how it reminded me just of those choose your own adventure books that I used to read when I was little and just how freeing that can be when we have choice and agency in our lives and in our learning. One parallel between choose your own adventure learning or choose your own adventure assessment, a more formal way of talking about that is through the practices of universal design for learning. And we have had an episode about that that I'll link to in the show notes, but that phrase and the universal design for learning was originally emerged in K through 12 in the 1990s and then got brought up, if you will, to the context of higher ed. And there's a few resources that I'll link to in the show notes, One, a couple of them from the National Center on Universal Design for Learning. Because oftentimes when I'm trying to think through how to 
build and mold some of these learning experiences, it really helps me to have examples. And you talked about, do I teach statistics? And and no, I don't. But there are others who do teach statistics and have used these practices and they're teaching. It really would work for any topic. It also would really work for any level of learning. Dave and I have talked about before, we have two young children and they are now three and five years old. So our daughter's in her first year of preschool and our son is in his, well, his first and hopefully only... (laughs) I think he's going to make, I shouldn't laugh at such things. I apologize to people for my insensitivities, but yes, I think, I think he'll, he'll based probably, on his trajectory for the first month, I think it's uh, pretty likely he's, he's going to fly with finally yes. flying colors. So. But the reason I bring that up is that there is, of course, uh, some of you may be aware of the Montessori method in preschool and that whole methodology. I recently saw on Audrey Waters, blog that she had read a book about the history of Montessori. And that is the idea where the the learners come in and they're able to just go bring out projects and work on them. The school that our kids go to is not all the way in the direction of just complete freedom and choice. There are some structured activities that they take all the, the kids through, especially when they get to the level of kindergarten, as an example. But then they have what they call choice time, or at least our son's teacher calls choice time. And then he really does get to go and decide what he wants to go explore a little bit more. And that's really what I would recommend for more fundamental type courses is that there are sort of these anchors that everyone does experience and that you kind of think of building them through some of the key cornerstones of a class and then giving them agency in other parts to go dive a little bit deeper and explore things that they're a little bit more interested in. But I would go check out these links for Universal Design for Learning. There's also one from an organization called CAST. They have some UDL resources that'll be worth looking at. And go check out those examples and would love to hear back from you on what you're able to implement. Our next question comes from Anne-Marie, and I was telling Dave that this question, actually, we got some responses already in the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel, but I thought I would get your take on it, and it's from Anne-Marie, and she asks about getting things done, uh, oftentimes abbreviated GTD, and they call tasks in that system next action. So she asks about how do we handle next actions when it comes to grading, And she talks about if she's got this big list of essays that she's got to do. And so is the grading, or at least the way she's doing it, the grading of each essays is considered a project. Because if you're going to be following GTD to the letter of the law, anything that takes more than one step, he says, is a project. Now, do I follow that entirely? No, I don't. But anyway, so she's talking about, okay, if she's got this project, if you will, of grading How do you break that up or do you break that up? So that's the question for you. How do you handle that in GTD when you've got a big pile of grading to do? I suspect we've both handled, we both handled this a little differently, Bonnie. It's been a little bit since I've uh, taught, but when I've taught, I've taught at the master's level and generally the classes are smaller. So they're maybe 10 people on average. Um, I say that in the context of this question, because for me to take the time to break down an action on a task list to have everyone's assignments listed is more time than it's worth because I'm spending more time doing that than it is just to jump in and get started. The way I tend to handle large batches of needing to do things is I block time on my calendar to do it. And when I think of getting things done, I mean, one of the core concepts from David Allen, I I hope I'm going to be quoting him right, but he basically says there's two problems 
you know people have as far as planning and productivity. Uh, one is deciding what you want to do, and second is what's the next action. So I answer that question by planning out my weeks in advance. Usually on the on the weekend or first thing Monday morning, I'll plan out my week, so I know exactly what I'm going to be doing next. And I block out the amount of time in my calendar that I think is going to take to do that. So, for example, if I was if I'm in a, if I was grading a chunk of papers, I would block out whatever I think is going to take the time to do that. If it's you know two to three hours, I'd block that out and I just power through all of them. And within that, I might do little like mental games with myself, like okay, I get to read you know I'm grading three, and after I grade three, then I get to get up and you know walk around for five minutes or go get a snack or whatever. But usually, I just block it out. You you sometimes do a little more do this a little more granularly though. I've seen when you're doing grading, right? Yeah, it really does depend on if we're talking about substantial projects. I talked about grading group projects at the end of a semester where each one might take me 30 to 45 minutes. That's certainly something that I need that little reward of checking off that the one got done. I can see my progress that way. I do also think it's wise to block time in our calendar. I will say, Dave, this is an area where I fall down, though, because I block time in my calendar now, and then I don't honor that time. Something else comes up, or or email is kind of raining the day for me these days. And so that's going to be difficult, because if you, if you rely on that only, the blocking of time in your calendar to guide you, but you don't have it as part of your task list as well, then you can sometimes have your priorities get a little bit lost, or at least I can. I mean, you have to find what works for you. And that's something that that getting things done practice really reminds us is we do have to find what works for us. And so, yeah, I hope that's helpful to you, Anne-Marie. And I really appreciate you asking the question and engaging so much in the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel. And next, we have a question from Robert, and his question is about Twitter. He says, I'm a big fan of your podcast and enjoy listening to the great ideas. You're such an inspiration. And thank you for that, Robert. I get so inspired by the people that come on the show, like Dave talked about earlier. Robert says, I heard... You and some of your guests mentioning Twitter as a valuable resource for information. For me, it has so far been an overwhelming source of noise and just too much, often useless information. Do you know an article or something else that could be of use or even better, describe it yourself in another episode. Thank you so much. And he shares that Robert is a physics professor at the University of Applied Sciences in Rosenheim, Germany. Well, thanks for the question, Robert. Uh, so I do use Twitter pretty extensively. What I find Twitter is helpful for is being able to find out what are articles and resources that people I care about are sharing online. And it is a very immediate and fast way to find out what are books being talked about, what are articles that are valuable. Um, Bonnie mentioned, or we've mentioned before, I have a podcast on leadership. And so I'm always looking for articles and books and things that I can share with my community and with my clients. I would say there's a couple of principles that I use for Twitter that have really helped me to have it be less overwhelming. Um, first and foremost is I'm pretty, I, I limit the amount of people that I follow on Twitter. I see people who follow thousands of people on Twitter or sometimes tens of thousands, and I just don't know how people do that. I know there's software you can use to filter out things. I you know, I don't think I've ever followed more than about 100 people on Twitter. And so that's one principle I found that um, I, I try to limit the amount of noise that's coming in. Secondly is I don't follow organizations. For the most part, I follow people. And so I look to individuals and what are individuals who are in 
my field of interest and what are they sharing and what are they um, what are they posting online? And I, I will say before I follow someone, I often will look at their Twitter stream and I'll look at what they've posted recently. And if they if they post hourly, <laughs> I never follow someone like that um, because it's just too much noise. I don't need that much noise in my Twitter stream. So I generally follow people that maybe they post something once or twice or three times a day because I don't I don't want to be overwhelmed with too much information. It doesn't matter how interested I am in someone. If they post too much, I just don't follow them on Twitter. So that I find that looking on history is helpful before I make a decision if I'm going to follow someone. And then the other thing that I do is I'm, I'm very comfortable and happy to go through every once in a while and drop 10 or 15 people off that, um, you know, I'll follow someone temporarily. Like if I'm going to interview someone for my show or I'm following them for a specific reason or news event, I might follow them for a month or so. And then, um, you know, I'll unfollow them once that particular time sensitive thing is done with or the interview is done. So I'm very conscious of trying to limit it. And I find that if I do those things, Twitter can be a very valuable source of information and resources and seeing what some of the top thinkers in my field are sharing. And I still, uh, I'm kind of surprised actually how much value I still get out of Twitter because it has become very noisy in a lot of ways, but I still probably get most of the articles, most of the book references I initially find on Twitter because someone is saying something about it. So I'd encourage you to try those three things of limiting the number of people, um, following just people, not organizations, and just being you know, being perfectly fine leaving people if they're they're uh, tweeting too much. So I hope that helps. And let's see, we have uh, also, I think we have a comment here from a caller. So let's hear that audio. Hi, Bonnie. This is Angeles Picone. The other day you retweeted a tweet of mine and I felt <gasps> touched by a star. <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts mainly on history because I study history, like the history chicks or stuff you missed in history class. But I love your podcast because not only I get to learn, but I get to to become a better professional. I'm not a, a teacher yet. I used to be a teacher before grad school. I love teaching and I love doing research. So I love your podcast because it's at the perfect intersection of education, pedagogy, digital humanities, and research. I love the people that you bring. I already have some books in my wish list. And this message is to thank you for all the work that you do, for the research that you do, for bringing these people together, um, for the stories that you tell and you help people tell. I wanted to thank you, really. You're awesome, and I cannot wait to listen to the next episode. Bye. Did she say touched by a star? Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's why I married you. I wanted to be touched by a star every day. (laughs) So sweet. Thank you so much. We'll we'll put a recommendation to those podcasts in the uh, show notes as well. And I really could relate to when you talked about that feeling starstruck. I went last week to the... DML conference, digital media and learning conference. And this is actually a conference that while I was there, I found out is going away and is actually merging with the connected learning conference. So they'll be now rotating every other year between the East Coast of the United States and the West Coast of the United States. And it's moving to an August timeframe for future years. But at any rate, it was just a a wonderful but tremendously surreal experience to have learned so much from these individuals on digital spaces 
and then to see some of them in person. So I also felt that sense of being starstruck and learning so much and then just just but also that of like, oh my gosh, you know, these are these are celebrities in my world. I don't really care about the Kardashians or or whatever celebrities are out there today. These are the people that I really hold up as worthy of honor for what they do to shape our teaching and to really help just our students learn so much more effectively. So that I could totally relate to when you said that. You're not following the Kardashians on Twitter? No, no, no I am not. Me neither. Me no. neither. You've got a question. It's coming up from David. Uh, David. Okay. So David wrote in. Uh, let me find here. All right. David asked, he says, I'm starting a VAP in about two months. It will begin immediately after graduation. I will be teaching an intro course that I've taught uh, while a grad student several times. Still, most of this course was modeled after the way my advisor taught the course when I was his TA. When I started teaching uh, the course, it did add some I did add some different assignments and some of my own points here and there, but the structure of the course still follows his model. Now that I'm starting somewhere else, I'm thinking more, how do I teach the course the way that I would want to teach it? Do you have any advice about finding one's own teaching voice and how to better design courses that reflect one's own teaching style rather than modeling someone else's? I'm so glad that you asked this question because I hear so often sadly of people as they reflect on their experience in higher ed that they didn't have a lot of models to look to for effective teaching and learning and so i'm glad you're reflecting on that it can be nice to have someone else's work to at least shape some of our thinking because if they've been teaching it for a long time perhaps along the way they've been doing that important reflection of what's really crucial but oftentimes at least in my experience people that have been teaching more traditionally, you didn't say that necessarily, but they're they're trying to put so much into the class, so much content. I need to cover these topics that they don't really actually have students experience learning in the class. So I would have just a couple of ideas for you. And again, you didn't talk a lot about your experience and what concerns you might have had with the way the other individual taught the course. But I would be thinking about less is more so the, the, the idea that I need to actually pare down into what's really important to take away from a course and thinking about the most interesting, and, and Ken Bain talks about this a lot, the most interesting questions, and he even refers to these questions as beautiful questions. What, what sort of things are we going to explore that will just capture the imagination of the students and, and honing in on that instead of honing in on all the topic and content that needs to get covered. That's often a warning sign when someone talks about covering the content. So less is more, really honing in on the, the questions that are going to captivate the student's mystery and beauty and imagination and challenge their, their thinking in such important ways. And then the second way in which I would think of wanting to contrast from a more traditional course would be to bring more of the actual learning into the class. And we've talked about on many past episodes, the idea of doing some retrieval practice right there in the classroom. And of course, retrieval practice is the idea, instead of trying to get so much information into my students' heads, what if instead I had them practice retrieving that information from their heads and helping them to build 
stronger neural connections, which will lead to better retention and also deeper learning that's more able to think critically about that. So just a couple of ideas for you. I would love to hear how it goes. I know it's actually been a while since you originally wrote to me, so please get back in touch. And as you're starting to bring more of yourself into your teaching, I'd love to hear more about that. I have a thought on that too, Bonnie. One one thing that I was always encouraged to in the business training industry was being an instructor of going to see other instructors and pulling ideas from them. And when you're early on in your career doing this, it, nothing feels like yours because it's all so new. And what you will find, I think, is that when you talk to people who are doing really innovative things and you ask them about it, almost always they'll say, oh, that wasn't my idea. I borrowed this from someone else. I mean, the quote-unquote original idea is what do you choose to make your own by putting together ideas of others? And so um, going and sitting in on classes, watching lectures, watching presentations, listening to podcasts like this, and pulling ideas from other faculty who are doing innovative things, and then you put them in part of your class and you arrange them in a unique way, then it becomes yours and it starts to feel like yours after you've experimented and you're learning and growing with it. So I certainly encourage you to do that of finding the people out there who are doing some really innovative things and uh, following up on some of the books and uh, resources we talk about in this podcast. Um, And then as you integrate those in your class, then it it will become yours. So that leads us to a, a question or actually a comment from Gary. Gary wrote and said, I'm glad to find the podcast. Thank you for the great presentation on lecturing I heard the, this morning. I look forward to going uh, through the past uh, sessions. I've been teaching and hired for 20 plus years and love learning how to be a better teacher. I think he was probably talking about the Todd Sokrasik uh, episode yeah, on lecturing. Dynamic lecturing. Yeah, that was a really interesting conversation. It was uh, it was fun to, to listen to. Thank you so much, Gary. And Rachel in Rochester wrote in says, no question, just want to say thanks for what you do. The podcast has been a great resource as I've transitioned from a professor to a faculty developer. I recommend it all the time. You uh, Similar transition to what you're in the midst of doing right now, Bonnie. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, Rachel, thank you so much for the comment. It really brightened my day. And I actually met one of your colleagues at the conference I was mentioning that I attended last week, the Digital Media Learning Conference. And that was Liz Lawley. She gave a session called, and I love this title, Dave, Fork Your Syllabus, You Slackers. Hmm. And it was a pun, of course, for slackers. She taught the tool Slack, which we have a community for teaching in higher ed that exists on Slack. And Slack is a, I've talked about before on the show, like a combination of messaging and email and file sharing and trying to bring out the best of those qualities. And so she talked about how she's using that in her teaching. And then the fork your syllabus is a reference to her collaboration and work that she does on a platform called GitHub. And GitHub is most often referred to in the programming world. It's a whole it's a whole world, a digital world in which programmers can put their code up online. And it was built around, well, okay, how do people then suggest new pieces of code? It's it's like a really really sophisticated version of track changes in Word. So that you as the author of some code could say, oh, this person suggested that I fix it this way. Do I want to accept those changes or reject them? And of course, it's tracking all of how these pieces of code are being shaped. And if you want to fork something, that's essentially like doing a save as. So now I've taken your document and I've saved as and now I'm putting my own thoughts into it. I'm remixing it 
to put my own spin on it. Back actually to the earlier question about how do I make this my own, forking something on GitHub would be creating a copy of it so that you could put your own spin on it. But it always ties back to that original author. And it does that all. So you can tell, you know, where did this piece of where did this document come from? Or in her case, where did this syllabus originally come from? And she makes her stuff available so that any faculty member at her institution wants to teach one of her courses. It's not just syllabi, but it's all the supporting content for her courses. They can fork her content. It automatically attributes it back to her through the GitHub system, but she's able to have students go in and give feedback on her syllabi. If she's, and she, I don't know if she's still doing this, but she talked about at some point giving rewards for students who found typos and how weird that was for her at first, but actually it turned out to be a really cool thing for her. And so I just wanted to say, I'm so grateful for this session. I could talk a lot more and I'm just conscious of our time together today, Dave, but I'm gonna post a link to her materials, which are not surprisingly, stored on GitHub. So you could go see what they're like. And then actually, she's got the whole thing documented. It's almost going to be like you were at the session, all of what we learned there. It's incredible. Another really powerful session that I got to attend at the conference was one put on by Ramey Kalir. And actually, Dave, I'm super excited he's going to be on the show soon. We're trying to coordinate because he's actually going, he went to the conference I was at last week. He's going to be at the conference I'll be at this week. So we're going to see a lot of each other. I can stop feeling so starstruck when I see him and now he'll just be like a regular person to me. But anyway, he did this amazing session called Annotating DML annotating, of course, the name of the conference. And he drew from five different individuals work. And some of the people were there in person. And some of the people joined him over a virtual connection. And it was really cool. So we had Jeremy Dean, who is the director of education for hypothesis education. And hypothesis, listeners might remember, is the ability where we can annotate web pages and put almost a layer on top of them and have the ability to highlight and have conversations. And he also had Alan Levine, who talked about his net narratives class, which is a digital storytelling class. And He's doing these incredibly innovative things in his teaching, including taking his students on virtual bus trips. And it was so fun to get to learn about that. Another person I was starstruck by getting to hear, she wasn't there in person, but she joined us virtually, was Robin DeRosa. She's doing amazing work in building connected learning curriculum and is a big voice in the open textbooks movement. And I'll put a link in the show notes to her interdisciplinary studies open textbook. This is a textbook that is written by undergraduate interdisciplinary studies and for undergraduate interdisciplinary studies students. So that collaboration with her students and wanting to rethink interdisciplinary education in a digital age. And I'm not even done. I'm just giving the treetops here. You're going to have to check out the link that Remy posted. But there was a link to and discussion about the marginal syllabus. The Marginal Syllabus is a free and public educator professional development initiative, and Ramey convenes these monthly conversations about educational equality, and he does that via this kind of web annotation that I'm describing. And then lastly, a former guest on the show, someone I admire so greatly, was there virtually, and that's Gardner Campbell, and he talked about 
how he thinks about learning outcomes more as cognitive practices. And he shared a little bit about his fall 2017 literature class and how he's using hypothesis to help them do what he calls zoom in and uh, think more deeply about what they're reading and what they're learning. So I could go on and on, Dave, but I know we don't have the time. So uh, I've got a question. Actually, we're going to wrap up our questions for today's episode with a question for you, Dave, because I thought you'd be the perfect person to answer this. This is a, a question from Jill. Bonnie, I recently found your podcast and as an instructional designer at Xavier University, I have been learning a lot and appreciate what you're providing to the higher education community. My question is my desire to create a podcast for our community. My goal is to provide faculty and adjuncts with information and updates specific to our university, what we offer, what colleagues are doing, answering questions and things like that. However, creating a podcast will be new to me, and I was wondering if you could provide any tips, suggestions, or resources that could help get me started. Happy to help, Jill, and think it's a really interesting, innovative idea. I've heard uh, certainly several examples of organizations and individuals starting a podcast for more internally. So a few places to start. On the technology side, I would go to the website learnhowtopodcast.com. That's from Cliff Ravenscraft. He's a leader online and teaching people how to podcast and utilizing the technology well. Uh, That page hasn't been updated in a bit. However, really not hardly any of the technology has changed in the last few years. So I would check that out. There's a lot of video tutorials there on how to put together the technology to do it. And it's not terribly hard to do. And then uh, on the strategy side, there's a podcast about podcasting. So kind of meta, but it's, uh, it's called The Showrunner. It's put out by the folks at the Rainmaker Network. And the showrunner will give you some tips and ideas on how to uh, actually, from a from a content standpoint, to have a better show and a better experience and some of the things to be thinking about uh, of running a show. And then the other thing I'd suggest is just get started. If you think it's something that would be helpful to you and others in your community is just to start. Start small, do a test episode, do a couple of test episodes, see what people say, get feedback, tweak from there. When I started the Coaching for Leaders podcast six years ago, I I had three mantras at the beginning. One was just to do it weekly. The second one was to have good content. And the third one was to have really good audio quality. And I don't even think you would need to do all of those three necessarily uh, at the beginning. You can start off by not worrying that much about audio quality and just do it regularly and get some good content from your organization and folks internally. And I think that uh, that's a wonderful starting point. You can always you can always invest more both time or finances or resources if it becomes a bigger thing. And and then the other thought here, and this goes beyond the scope of the question here, Bonnie, but I think there's also a great opportunity for faculty to be using podcasts more within the curriculum of courses. And I've done this with not necessarily creating an entire podcast, but I've certainly recorded audio as a podcast episode for courses I've taught. So if there's a particular topic, um, back to our our comment earlier, Bonnie, on lecturing, there are some things that, and to Todd's point when he was on the show, that are best as a lecture. So there, sometimes it makes sense to talk for 15 or 20 minutes about something. And I have found in places where it makes sense to do that in a class, that rather than spending that 15 or 20 minutes within the class time, I'll record it as an audio and I'll post it and I'll ask people to listen or I'll have it as an assignment to listen or as a or as a writing response. And that way, 
we still get all the benefits from the lecture, but at the same time, I don't need to spend as much class time doing that. We can save class time for more interactive, um, experiential learning type things. And so I think that'd be a fun thing to do as a class, but also another way to integrate, and I know Bonnie does this as well, is within the syllabus of her courses, is sometimes finding a podcast episode that's relevant from NPR or from another provider out there and and having that be an assignment. So, you know, for this particular class period, it may not be reading, it may be listen to this podcast and um, and have that. So there's a lot of ways to integrate this, both, I think, from the internal faculty development side and staff, but also from how we are helping students to learn in a new and exciting way. If I were going to be thinking about how to reach faculty specifically at my institution, I would probably want to schedule synchronous sessions using some kind of a web platform. Dave and I are both really big fans of Zoom which is one of the many platforms out there that will allow you to connect that way. I I would stay away personally from starting out with a podcast only because it's hard to get the listenership that will justify the effort that it takes to produce these. These are this is not an easy <laughs> not an easy task to put together a podcast and have it be consistent like Dave just described. So you might want to think about maybe the opportunities like Dave just described of using another entity that already exists and already has the resources to build some content, but then draw from it and have discussions within your institution. And of course, you could record those discussions and then have people be able to access them later. My institution, they'll often ask me to record everything under the sun that we do. (laughs) And I resist that because there is something that when we know we're being recorded changes the dynamic of the conversation. So I build for the audience that will be consuming whatever it is. So if I'm going to create a recording of something, it's going to be I'm speaking to you the person who's listening to this. I'm not trying to meet the needs of multiple audiences, one which is an audience that's here live and has questions, but they might feel awkward to ask. And maybe some people go on a little bit too long and it's not you know, produced for the high value that we're looking for in a podcast type format. So just, just a couple things to think about. And I also wanted to mention that Laura Paschini and others are curating a list, a magnificent list of a bunch of different higher ed podcasts, which I'll link to in the show notes that might give you some inspiration around what Dave described as well. And and there may be some semantics here too of using the term podcast. What you're describing to me is doing something internally. You may choose not to post it up on iTunes or have a feed out there where people can even access it publicly. Uh, you know, as we all know, anytime you record something and put it anywhere on the internet, we should assume anyone can listen. But you don't have to go through all the complexity of thinking about marketing and getting low, getting artwork for the show and all that. You could literally have an audio conversation with someone, record it on an MP3 player, record it on a computer, and post it on Dropbox and send the link around to the faculty who would benefit from it. And you don't need to worry about finding an audience and all that because you already have the audience there. So, um, you know, start there. And then if it turns into something and you want to do something bigger with it, you can always, it's very easy to upgrade <laughs> and make it turn it into a bigger thing. But uh, just start simply and do it for the 10 people that are going to really benefit from it. And uh, you're off and running. Dave, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. These are things that have captured our attention in recent weeks, and I'm going to have you start us off today. Well, I have been, there's so much going on in the news as we're recording this, but I think this will be helpful whether someone's listening to this a week from now or a year from now. There's been all this um, disclosure of credit report, um, is it Equifax that I'm trying to remember which firm now Equifax that had this huge disclosure of 
something like half of Americans, I realize people listening abroad are under different systems, but in America, we've had half of our the U.S. population has had all their credit histories ex, um, exposed from a hacker recently. And so if you haven't already, um, one thing that we've done with pretty regular practice is we go online once a year and pull our credit reports. And you can do that. I think it's freeannualcreditreport.com. Bonnie will look it up and put the correct URL in the show notes. But you can pull your credit report once a year and check it. I would actually go a step further than that, and we are now going a step further than that. Um, you can, if you're here in the States, put a free fraud alert on your credit report if there's reason to believe that someone may have compromised your credit, which pretty much everyone in America has reason to believe that now. Um, look to your left. Look, look, to, your look right. to your left. Look to your right. <laughs> one of you has been more than one of you. And so um, it, it's really easy to do. It's completely free and it takes like two minutes. So go on to one of the three credit agencies. You'll see a link on the front page of how to put in put on a fraud alert and it's free for 90 days and it prevents, it doesn't prevent someone, but it slows down people of being able to get credit because they have to verify it through you. So I think that's something all of us should do. And also, I think it's probably prudent for a lot of people here in the States to think about either getting a credit monitoring service or doing what we're doing, which is putting a freeze on our credit reports, which means that no one can access credit, even you, which isn't helpful if you're going to be getting a loan or credit card in the near future. But that's not the situation we're in. So we're actually going to freeze our credit reports. And then you don't have to worry about anyone uh, with identity theft and all of those things. I mean, there's other things you may need to worry about, but certainly not with credit and opening up loans or accounts in your name. And I think it's something that everyone should be aware of. So um, if you haven't looked into those options, at the very least, putting the fraud alert on your account would be a prudent step for all of us. So that's my that's my good housekeeping financial recommendation for the year, maybe. My recommendation ties back to Anne Marie's question about getting things done. And people listening to the show for a while know that I'm a big fan, as is Dave, of not not all the practices, but I mean, a lot of it resonates with me. And specifically, because I've been so fortunate to be able to experience these conferences in recent weeks, and I've got some more that I'm going to, and I'm going to be speaking at some conferences coming up here in the next month. My head feels like it's exploding with all the stuff that I've been able to learn and all the people that I've been able to meet. And that can really start to be a time where it can become discouraging, not for me, because I have a good solution, which is to use what they call a someday maybe list. And as we come across these ideas, we don't have to try every tool that comes across our way. We don't have to read every article that comes our way. We can we can have just, wow, that's amazing. Let me put it on a someday maybe list that I can go and explore. I even have things like, and then I think this is actually on your list too, of like go apple picking with the kids. It's in my someday maybe list. So when I want to go find the place that's good to go pick apples with our kids, I will have access to that. So sometimes it's fun stuff. Sometimes a lot of times it's techie stuff for me or stuff I want to make better about the teaching in higher ed website. But I have a place where I can put those ideas that doesn't clutter up my task list so that my task list can be things that really I am committed to doing and I don't have to get it all cluttered up and feel overwhelmed. So when I open up my someday maybe list, it's just exciting. It's exciting to think, oh, what could I pick out of here to try today? So I would encourage everyone to have a someday maybe list. It doesn't have to be anywhere fancy, just a place where you can go and capture your inspiration. And that's it for our questions and comments. Thanks, Bonnie. It was fun to uh, play along. 
Dave. Thanks for carving out part of your day to be here. We've been like two ships passing in the night this last week, so it was fun to actually catch up with each other a little bit behind microphones. And I wanted to be touched by a star, so yeah, well, here, we all here do, I really. Here we I all am. do. Hey, uh, Slack was mentioned a few times during this conversation. You have a fabulous community of listeners that are on Slack, so if you want to check that out, go to where? Teachinginhighered.com slash Slack. Well, that's easy. Very good. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. There's some great guests coming up. I mentioned Ramey's going to be on the show soon, and I'm sure we're going to learn even more from him. And so keep listening. We'll see you next week. And if you're not on the Teaching in Higher Ed uh, weekly email, go to teachinginhighered.com and uh, hop on there because you'll get a weekly article from Bonnie. 